Well, my friends, it's been two months, and now we are finally done Acts 7. This is, we are wrapping up Stephen today. I thought we were wrapping it up last week. Surprise, there's another one. All throughout Acts 7, Stephen has the difficult but history-altering task of illustrating that God is doing a brand new revolutionary thing, but that this brand new revolutionary thing is actually a very old thing. It is not actually new at all. It's just approached from a new angle. He argues with his accusers that there is precedent for the new direction that God is moving his kingdom towards. And that precedent is found in nothing less than the very scriptures that these enemies of the gospel claim to cherish. Last week we looked at three important but relatively minor implications of Stephen's speech uh, for our faith today. They are, number one, God is not confined to any one nation, and neither are we. Oh, sorry, those are the three big principles we've looked at every week. So from these three principles, we derived these three principles. That number one, God is not confined to any one nation, and neither are we. We belong to a kingdom, not a country. Not even a country as excellent as the one we're celebrating 150 years uh, with uh, this last week. Number two, don't look back and desire for your own life as the Israelites did at the foot of Sinai. Um, That life is dead and buried and a new life has arisen. Look back, but only to see what God has done. Uh, See God at work so that you can find him ahead of you, blazing trails into an exciting new work that he is absolutely doing in your life. Don't look back and longing for your old life. There's nothing of worth. That life is dead. There's a new life awaiting you. Look forward to that. And number three, What will you be stubborn about? Will you be stubborn about your interpretation of truth? Or will you um, be stubborn about a life lived in a way that brings glory to truth itself, manifest in the person of Jesus? The Sanhedrin had truth right there. They knew the scriptures. They ignored it. They were stubborn about it. And that was their, their doom. So what will you be stubborn about? Each of these is important. I I believe that's why I wrote a sermon about them. But none of these truths altered the course of history, as I mentioned earlier, quite like this final uh, mega principle of Stephen's speech. This principle is the reason, actually, that Stephen was martyred. It's true. But it's also the reason that any of us is here worshiping this morning. It's the reason we're invited into the kingdom. The core of Stephen's speech, which we will see expand and explode throughout the rest of Acts and the rest of the New Testament and the rest of human existence is this, that God has abandoned the temple system in favor of a new dwelling place. There is a more perfect tabernacle and a less perfect temple, and these things have eternal ramifications for every human being. That sounds very grandiose. Um, We've spent eight weeks studying Stephen, and he's a pretty grandiose guy. There is a more perfect tabernacle and a less perfect temple. And what does that mean for us? To examine that, I'm going to actually look at several scriptures of New Testament temple theology so we can explore what Stephen's message message has to say uh, to our understanding of God's holy dwelling place. Uh, As I've mentioned many times, Stephen's speech is this big TSN turning point in the history of the church. It's the hinge on which a new gate opens. And we're going to examine some of the consequences of that speech for us uh, throughout the New Testament. So scripture one, this is from Hebrews nine. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. 
with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, as they did in the Old Testament, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, which, as you'll remember, is the very center, the very heart of the tabernacle and the temple, the Holy of Holies. And he entered that most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. The unknown author of Hebrews. Jack, who wrote Hebrews? Clement. Clement. Ooh. Phoebe or Apollos. That's my leaning. Sorry, it's just Bible nerd humor. Uh, The unknown author of Hebrews does a masterful job of illustrating how all of the Old Testament systems of worship were perfected and completed in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Not abolished, perfected. This was the job Stephen began in his defense of Jesus to the Sanhedrin. And that's what he did. He examined the Old Testament scriptures to see how God is at work, um, uh, how he had always been at work, and what it means moving forward. And that's what the author of Hebrews does too. Taking Old Testament thinking, theology, sacrificial system, temple, temple theology, and seeing how Jesus perfects and completes it. And here's the idea behind this verse in Hebrews. The idea is that the tabernacle and later the temple were only shadows of something much more glorious. They were only copies. Um, have you ever watched fireworks on TV? It's pretty pathetic, right? It's not much of anything. Have you ever taken a picture of a sunset that abs- or, or a, like a waterfall or anything that just totally fails to do justice to the beauty on display before you? Yes. I used to take endless sunset pictures all the time. And a few of them were really good and captured what I had seen perfectly. But usually it's like you get them back, especially in the days before digital cameras where it was like film and you had to wait like hours to get to see what you had taken. And you'd get it back and you it's like a power pole in the middle of the picture and it doesn't, the colors don't look like I nah, It's garbage. Some things just cannot be captured through human constructs. They just, they just can't. There's things too magnificent for humanity to, to capture properly. They can only be reflected or refracted or shadowed. Watching fireworks live is exhilarating and powerful and beautiful. Some of that translates to TV, but mostly it's underwhelming and small. It's like fizzle and pop and bang and it's nothing special. Well, this is true for the tabernacle as well. The tabernacle, unlike the temple, was God's idea. In fact, the author of Hebrews says he built it with his own hands, even though that's kind of discrediting the humans who built it with their hands. The point of that is to say, no, this was God's plan, God's idea. He was the one in charge. He ordered everything precisely with divine purpose and power. But all of those special instruments, all that gold and bronze, all the depth of meaning, all the holy provisions, all the acts of sacrifice and sacredness, every inch of that tabernacle was pointing to something larger. There's nothing special about loaves of bread. It's the most common thing in the world. And yet there in the tabernacle were loaves of bread. There's nothing special about incense, about burning a candle. And yet there were candles right there in the tabernacle. There's nothing special about drapery. There's nothing really special about gold. It just happens to be less common than other rocks we know of. There's nothing inherently special about any of the elements of the tabernacle or temple. Except that they point to something greater. 
something more glorious. Stephen's speech is pointing this out to us as well, that the temple exists, the tabernacle exists to point to something greater. Remembering the words of Isaiah 66, 1, which Stephen had quoted right in Acts 7, he quotes Isaiah 66, 1, which says, um, Heaven is God's throne and the earth is his footstool. His hands made the entire cosmos. So how could we then make the same error as the Pharisees and cram God into a fancy little box made by our own feeble hands? And we don't think for a second that that's just something that the Pharisees and Sadducees did. Because I do this all the time. I've had many, many, many times in my life, primarily at Bible college, but other times as well, where my understanding of God, I realized that I had been boxing him in. And that my feeble, human, witless understanding of of who God is and how he acts needed to be exploded out. Because anytime you you try to constrain your idea of what God is to, to little things... He will amaze you and astound you, and you'll be left feeling very humbled and very stupid. Um, we do this with our thinking and with our actions all the time. We, we box God in. As I said three weeks ago, like the temple's this fancy little birdcage, and we treat God like this pretty little bird singing pretty words to us that we store in that birdcage. But that's not how God is. If he's creator of all of the cosmos, then there's no box that can hold him. There's no thinking that perfectly grasps him. And so the true dwelling place of the Son of the Almighty God, the true tabernacle, not some tent in the wilderness, but the true tabernacle, where Jesus dwells and judges, and as we saw for Stephen, I love this, stands up and advocates on our behalf, the place where he does those things, the real place of divine power and glory, is not some fancy tent in dusty old Israel. It's the place that John the Apostle, when he writes Revelation, finds essentially indescribable. He talks of jasper and jade and crystal, and those are just the closest things he could find to describe what he's seeing. And they don't even begin to capture the image that he has of the tabernacle, the true tabernacle where Jesus resides. A place more glorious than we even have words for. As lovely And as sacred as the earthly tabernacle was, as much as God dwelt there and his presence could be felt there and found there, it was still only a shadowy copy of the real thing. Like watching fireworks on TV. It's just a pale image of of the power and the glory. Stephen is indicating that the Sanhedrin's idolatry of the temple is forcing them to miss the incomprehensible glory of God's true dwelling place. They're so wrapped up and their worship is so centered around the, t- the temple that they miss the real glory of, of God and of Jesus in the true tabernacle. A place perhaps beyond time and space. A place that is perhaps a recreated and perfected version of this fragile, broken, fallen world. A place uh, beyond the vandalism of his creatures. A place that we call heaven. As Re- Revelation 21 uh, verses 22 to 24 says... This is John speaking. He says, I saw no temple in the city. And the city is like the portrait of heaven. I saw no temple in the city. No temple whatsoever. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, that's Jesus, they are the temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. That's how John describes 
this place where Jesus is, where he has power and glory. So much power and glory that there's not, it's not even that he supersedes the temple. It's that there is no need for a temple whatsoever. Everything that the temple represented is perfectly manifest in Jesus Christ. All of that glory, all of that power, all of that goodness, all of that sacredness, it's there in Jesus. And so, as great as the temple is, it's just a shadow of the real thing. And the real thing is so glorious and so filled with the light and life of Jesus Christ that no temple is even required. It's totally different from earth. The whole place, all of heaven, is one big, beautiful tabernacle where Christ's sacrifice covers those who have been proven faithful, like Stephen, like us, is the hope and belief, and who are invited inside the gates to feast with the Son and bask in the glory of the Father. So, that's the first thing we can learn about the temple, is that whatever construct, whatever, whatever goodness and glory was found in the tabernacle and temple was just a pale image of something greater, something more true, Something that when we experience it one day um, will, will be all the glory we need to sustain us through eternity. And speaking of faithful believers, here is scripture number two. Ephesians 2, there's a few slides here. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations, which obviously includes the temple, the tabernacle. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought the good news of peace to you Gentiles. You Gentiles! Yes, you. Even you. He brought the good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Very soon in the book of Acts, if we can ever get out of Acts 7, very soon in the book of Acts, we will see just how enormous this was. The consequences and ramifications were enormous. They, they changed the course of history, and that's no understatement at all, or overstatement at all. Through Peter and Paul and Philip, Gentiles would be invited into the salvation previously available only to the Jews, to God's chosen people, the Israelites. By the way, what is a Gentile? What, what is a, a good working definition of a Gentile? Exactly. Exactly, Horst. A non-Jew. That's, a, that's all it means. Somebody who's not Jewish. Um, it's kind of a Bible word, and maybe not everyone knows that. A, a Gentile is a non-Jew, so a non-Israelite. In other words... A foreigner, an outsider. But Stephen, as we've seen throughout Acts 7, is adamant in his declarations that God does not value borders. God, borders mean nothing to God. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the fathers of faith, 
All of them did their most powerful acts of faith in places far from the promised land of Israel. When, when Abraham was first called, he wasn't in the promised land. He was promised the promised land. He was way away in Ur, which, again, is the sound you make when you're trying to say, where is Ur? Ur is nowhere. It's far away from anywhere special and sacred. Joseph, he did his mightiest. He rose to power and ended up saving God's chosen people in a very real way after being rejected by God's chosen people. He saved God's chosen people, not in Israel, not in Canaan, but in Egypt, the foreign superpower of the time. And Moses, he, through Moses, God birthed Israel. He did that first through Egypt and then in the wilderness in Sinai, which again, this is Israel, way down here is Sinai. It's nowhere near the promised land. Those are the places where Israel was born. Ur, Egypt, the promised land, where faith was initiated. In foreign lands, on foreign soil. So, if God is unconcerned about borders when it comes to where he will call, guide, and save people, why wouldn't he be unconcerned about borders when it comes to who he will call, guide, and save? Who he will make into his people? Borders don't mean anything. As we saw in Ezekiel today, his will is that all sinful people will come to know him. That all sinners would turn, turn, turn to him. All sinners. Even the Gentile sinners. And that was a tough, as we see when we get to Peter's story and later Paul's story. It's hard, it was hard for the Jews to accept that maybe the Gentiles could be part of the kingdom. That was a tough thing for them to reconcile. They were the chosen ones. Their job had been to eradicate the non-believers, the pagans, the, the enemy nations. And now God's doing a new thing, which is really just an old thing. And Jesus, Jesus, in his lifetime, he targeted this role of the temple. When he goes into Jerusalem, the holy city, for the first, um, for, to, to initiate the, the last week of his life, what's the, where's the first place he goes once he's in Jerusalem? To the temple. And is he happy to be in the temple? <laughs> no, he's, <laughs> he's, very, he's very upset at the temple. He's upset at what the temple had become. In Mark eleven seventeen, Jesus yells at the money changers. He quotes Isaiah 56 and he says, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. And that's a very interesting thing for Jesus to call the temple. Jesus doesn't call it a house of worship for the Jews. He doesn't call it a place of sacrifice for the Hebrews. He doesn't call it the holy dwelling place of Israel's God, even though all those things are true. That's not how he identifies it. It was all those things. But Jesus identifies it not for its Jewishness or its Hebrewness or its Israeliteness. He identifies it as a place for all nations, a place of prayer where all people, whether Jewish like Stephen or the Sanhedrin, or whether Gentile like you and me, a place where all people are welcome to approach the throne of God with humility and boldness, a place where we can meet our creator and communicate with him and commune with him through prayer. That's how Jesus identified the temple. And he saw it wasn't that. It had become this fancy box with all these walls that pushed people away, not welcomed them in. The role of the temple was to invite people towards God. And in Jesus' day, the shepherds of Israel, again, we looked at Ezekiel 34, those wicked shepherds who misled the sheep. That was true of the Sanhedrin as well. 
and the shepherds of Israel had let it become corrupted. It had become a place where the nations were shooed away from God, where even God's chosen nation was kept behind walls, away from their loving creator. But not anymore. Not anymore. A new thing is happening. Stephen ushers in a new age, formalized through men and women uh, in the coming chapters with famous names like Philip and Peter and Paul. An age in which the gospel is truly a message for all humanity, just as it was always intended. Do you remember the original covenant promise to Abraham, the, the father of faith? It, it, he promised descendants, a nation, but that that nation would bless the whole world. It was a promise specifically for Israel. It became Israel, but Israel had a purpose, a role in the greater, greater experience of humanity. And that role was to be a blessing, a light to the nations. The temple represented division and segregation. No foreigners, no women, no sinners allowed. There was walls that kept, there were ever encroaching circles that kept people away. And if there's no foreigners, no women, no sinners, that makes for a pretty small percentage of the population that can go into this thing. Do you think God only loved and valued fancy, fancy powerful men? Fancy elite Jewish powerful men? Of course not. And so he changes it. Now, each of us, no matter our gender, no matter our ethnicity, no matter our religious history, no matter our brokenness or our weakness, no matter who we are, all of humanity is invited to become a purposeful brick in the beautiful house of God's presence. Whether you are a Jew like Stephen or a Gentile like me, you are all called to be a purposeful brick in the beautiful house of God's presence. And that leads me to the third and final scripture. And for my money, the best one. I mentioned earlier that there is a more perfect tabernacle, a more perfect tabernacle, and that is heaven, as well as a less perfect temple. But how does being less perfect make it more meaningful? The temple was a gorgeous structure. I've never seen it. Darcy and Kathy have been to the, what, the recreated temple there now. Kind of envy them for that. Um, but the temple was a gorgeous structure. In Jesus' day, it had been rebuilt by the Romans to appease the Jews, and they kind of went all out. It was lined with gold and fashioned from the finest wood in the region with lavish decorations and ornate designs. It was a spectacle of wonder. It was intended originally by David, and then again when it was rebuilt, it was intended as a palace fit for a creator, a Taj Mahal for the one true God. It was a perfect piece of architecture. But that perfection had limits. It was a cold perfection. Because it was lavish, it made the poor feel unworthy and unwanted. Because it was man-made, it made God feel containable. Because it was fixed to one location, it made God seem impersonal and immobile. But all of that changes with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and early church histories like Stephen and Peter and Paul. We know how Stephen thought of the temple. He depreciated it and devalued it. And for that, he was charged with blasphemy and eventually gave his life because of that belief, because of he was a prophet for that truth. But what did Peter and Paul think? Well, here's their thoughts. First Peter, and this is from one of those little books I mentioned earlier that's so worth our time. First Peter 
Um, this is from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 5. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you, each of you, are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So that's Paul's thinking. Here's, or Peter's thinking. Here's Paul's thinking. This is from first, There's a f- few really good examples of Paul's thinking. I just picked this one because it's short and concise. This is 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and the spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. <laughs> you can't get much more blunt and clear than that. You are that temple. God has abandoned a spectacular, beautiful, breathtaking, lavish dwelling place. He abandons a palace for a balding, boring, beat-up nobody named Chris Lance. That's a pretty steep step down from beautiful to this. Not exactly the platonic ideal of splendor and glory standing before you. It's kind of like moving... Uh, the queen from Buckingham Palace to, oh, they left. Shoot, I was going to make another Hootmer chicken barn joke. I still will. It's kind of like the queen moving from Buckingham Palace into the Hootmer chicken barn. A big step down from perfection. And yet, that's where the spirit of the living God chooses to take up residency. Inside broken, battered people like you and me. If the temple made people feel unworthy, now the Holy Spirit declares us worthy. That is a profound truth that I know I don't understand all the time or, or um, live in a way that represents that powerful truth. But once we were unworthy and the temple made that clear, now we are worthy. The Holy Spirit works in us to make us holy because of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. If the temple made God feel impersonal and immobile, well, now he's in a person, all of us persons. He's no longer impersonal. He never had been, but if the temple made him feel that way, now he is very clearly personal, as intimately personal as possible, dwelling right inside your heart. And he's no longer immobile. He's no longer chained to Jerusalem. He's as mobile as any human can be mobile. He goes where we go. He he is in us. Like that simple little burning bush. There it is. Like a wilderness hill like Mount Sinai. Like a food trough in a podunk town like Bethlehem. And like me. There's me. God takes takes common and unspectacular things and fills them up with sacredness and power and eternal worth. None of these things is inherently special. It's just a bush in the wilderness that happens to be on fire with God's presence. It's just a mountain like any other mountain in the wilderness except that God... His presence is like a consuming fire on top of it. It's just a trough. It's just a manger in some cave in some backwoods town that happened to be David's birth town. It's nothing special except that it contains the glory of the Son of God. And that other guy, he's nothing special either. And yet there's the Holy Spirit living in him. He does the same thing with unspectacular commoners like you and I. takes common things and fills them with glory. He makes sacred dwelling places out of regular people rejected by the world. And that's Stephen's story. Just a regular guy rejected by the world. 
He makes sacred dwelling places out of regular people with pasts filled with failure, like Peter. Peter was one face palm after another. He just constantly falling all over himself until he got it. And once he got it, he really got it. But he had a past filled with failure, and yet still he was a sacred dwelling place. Regular people who had once been enemies of God, like Paul. Regular people who are forgotten, fearful, and faithful outcasts, like Mary. Each of these heroes, not to mention Mary Wildman, and a hero like Dale Ford, and a hero like Lois Boris, and a hero like Paul Kaufman, heroes like you, each of you is the home of the Creator God, a common thing filled with power and glory and sacredness. We have the Holy Spirit in us individually and communally. Together we form the temple, and each of us is in and of ourselves also a temple, like a little mini altar, and each altar comes together to build a much more glorious, bigger temple. Each of us is a living stone being shaped and sculpted with care by the master builder, and at the top, Holding it all together is the capstone, Jesus Christ. Because of this, we have a lot to live up to. You can't read this without thinking of the personal application. We would never waltz into the temple in Jerusalem and start vandalizing the walls or spit on the altar, right? You would never do that. Yet, that's what our sin does to us. If we are the temple, that's what sin does to us. It demeans a sacred space. Knowing this about ourselves makes his residency inside us more powerful and significant in both a positive and a negative way. The responsibility is is not to go to some particular building in a particular city in a particular country to find God because he's already trekked down to us in human form and set up shop in our hearts. So we don't need to go anywhere. There's freedom in that. There is value in that. There's purpose for each of us because of that. However, there's also a stern sense of decorum that accompanies it. If we are the temple, and if we are the temple, then that should really affect how we view our bodies, how we view our lives, our speech, our behavior. Don't you think? Paul relates this very explicitly to sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6. Your body is the holy temple. Why would you join your body to a prostitute? Very explicit that No other sin so affects the body, which is the temple, quite like sexual sin. But in 2 Corinthians 6, he also relates it to idolatry. You would never bring an idol into the temple. So why do you, with your body that is a temple, idolize things? Like food, like comfort, like pleasure, like money. There's a stronger sense of personal responsibility now than there was under the temple system. I mean, under the temple system, you went once a year with a goat and shed its blood, and then you went home. That was your interaction with the temple. But it's much more personal now, and the responsibility is much more on our shoulders. And that's hard. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. It's hard to be a temple. But it's worth it, and he's worth it, and he deserves it. And what's more, he doesn't just force us to do it on our own. Hey, be more like a temple. You, he actually gives us the Holy Spirit to shape us into something more tabernacle-y than we would be by ourselves. He is residing within us. He is guiding us ever closer to himself. He's continually forming us into a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. And what's more, we aren't just the temple. We are the priests. (laughs) 
we're not just the temple. We are the ones who serve in the temple. We are called to do his holy work here on earth. And we're not just the temple and not just the ones who serve in the temple. We are the sacrifice made by the ones who serve in the temple. We are a living sacrifice as we lay down our lives for his glory. This new temple system that we're called to is profoundly beautiful and beneficial, but it comes at a great cost. The first cost was the life of the son, and the second cost is the living existence of he or she who chooses to follow the son. And so, in conclusion, these several passages from the New Testament highlight for us the fact that there is a more perfect tabernacle where Jesus reigns supreme, and also a less perfect temple where he reigns as Lord as well, and that's you and I the very hearts of redeemed sinners like us. All people from all over the world, whether Jew or Gentile, are called to become bricks in his house, each with their own place and their own role, which means that if one brick is missing, that's to the detriment of the whole building. Each brick is important. Each brick has a role. The cosmos cannot contain our God, but our hearts can. I am both encouraged and terrified by that idea which sounds an awful lot like the beautiful life that Jesus invites us into. Terror and beauty, glory and goodness, together in one. Let's pray. Jesus, we are unworthy to be your holy presence here on earth, but you make us worthy. Holy Spirit, thank you for shaping us as living stones in this holy temple that is the church. I pray that we would respect the fact that we are temples more. Holy Spirit, guide us into a more perfect sense of what it means to be a tabernacle and a temple. Father, we look forward to the time. Our great hope is meeting you in the perfect tabernacle in heaven, recreated earth, um, whatever it is, wherever you are, we long to meet you and experience that power and that glory. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty. And when we're there, One day will be like a thousand years and a thousand years will be like a day and it'll be beautiful and glorious. And we look forward to that day. That is our hope. But until then, help us to bring your holiness and your sacredness down to earth. Help us to be little temples, part of the greater temple that is the church that brings sacredness and holiness to this broken world. Thank you for choosing us as your temples. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.